Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Today. Yeah. Yes. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15. Hear the very words of our Lord. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Let's pray. Lord God, you have something that you want us to receive this morning to be encouraged. To be encouraged in the reality that you are coming to be encouraged that we are not left here to figure this out on our own, and yet to be encouraged to run with endurance the race that you have set before us. So we ask now, encourage our hearts, encourage our minds, and build us up that we may endure until that day that you return. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here last week, uh, you heard Pastor Dan kind of do a great job of giving us the background of the church of Thessalonica. And so I'm not going to go through all of that again, but I am going to give you some of the basics as a reminder. So we have Paul and Silas, and they came to Thessalonica in Acts 17. And on three different Sabbath days, they went into the synagogue and they preached. And the results of that preaching... According to Acts 17.4 are this. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So over roughly three weeks, a church is formed in Thessalonica that consists of some Jews. It consists of uh, many devout Greeks. And it consists of a decent number of wealthy, high-position-holding women. But then soon after that, there were some Jews who rejected Paul's message, and they formed an angry mob. They got the city in an uproar, and they went and they attacked the house of Jason, which is where Paul was staying. And they did this because they were jealous of Paul and Silas, and they wanted to capture them and imprison them because they were preaching Christ crucified. And so then the brothers within the church immediately sent them to Berea, along with Timothy, And then after preaching in Perea, uh, Paul then went to Athens, but then Timothy, he sent him back. And he sent him back to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, hey, go back. I want to hear about them. I want to hear what's going on and encourage them while you're there. And then finally, Paul meets Timothy in Corinth, where he he brought him a report that actually the Thessalonian church was, was doing pretty well. Despite the afflictions they were facing, they were growing in their faith in Christ. But there were still some areas. There were still some areas where they were struggling, and they really needed the instructions of Paul. 
Areas like holy living, suffering, shirking their responsibility to work, and the second coming. And so then Paul, he writes this beautiful letter in 1 Thessalonians. Just, it's only five chapters, but there's a lot. And he covers everything in those five chapters. Which then kind of begs the question, if he covered all of that, if he talked about all of that in that first letter, then why does he need to write a second letter? Aha, there's my second page. (laughs) Now, we don't know who delivered the letter. Uh, Maybe it was Timothy, so Timothy went and got the first report, so maybe he came back and... You know, then when Paul wrote the first one, maybe he was the one to take it. But we do know that when the messenger returned, that Paul found it necessary to write a second letter and rather quickly. Like he probably wrote the second letter to the Thessalonians probably within like three to four weeks of the first one. Right? Which actually was which was actually pretty uncommon for Paul to write that quickly. And the reason is that the Thessalonians, they had received a fake letter that was supposedly from Paul and his associates telling him that the day of the Lord or Christ's second coming had already happened and that this church missed it. So Paul writes what scholars call the second coming epistle. So if you think about 2 Thessalonians, think about it as the second coming epistle. And he wrote it to, the, to remind them like, hey, you haven't missed it. Christ is still coming back. And he wrote it to encourage them to live in light of his coming. And so my hope this morning is basically to do the same thing. I want to remind all of us that Jesus is coming and that his coming should be an encouragement. And it should be an encouragement particularly to endure in faith, to trust his promises, and to do the work that he has given us until the day that he returns. And so with that goal in mind, I have three points for you this morning. And the first one is this. It's that the second coming helps us to endure suffering. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 and 4 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So there was a very short period of my life, roughly between 2016 and 2019, where I had this great idea that I was going to become a distance runner. And so in what I will claim to be my stupidity, I decided that I was going to sign up for my first half marathon. And then I began this like three to four month, just arduous process of training for this thing. And I remember After all that was training was done, the day came, the race happened, I got to the end and I was so happy for this thing to be over. And I remember every time it ended, my first thought was, I'm never doing that again. That was dumb. And then I did it again. I don't know why. But with all of that said, in each of these three races, I remember one aspect that has stuck with me ever since. As I was running, there'd be these mile markers along the way. And at every mile marker, there are people there. And there are people, they're doing awesome, like they're doing their job. They're cheering you on. They're holding out water. They're holding out Gatorade. Whatever you need 
to keep you going. And this not only helped kind of boost my spiritual energy, right? My, like, yeah, I can keep going. But also, right, kind of replenishing fluids. But it served also as a constant reminder to keep running. Because as I saw those mile markers, right, I knew that the end was coming. And so the Thessalonians are also running a race. And we're all running it too, the race of faith. And according to Paul, as I said, they're actually running it pretty well. So well, in fact, that he and Silas and Timothy, it says that they boast about these believers and the other churches of God that they visit. Because they were not merely believing in Christ, but they were continuing to trust and follow Christ, even though they were being persecuted. They were enduring in faith, even as they suffered. But that doesn't mean that everything was perfect. It doesn't mean that they were perfectly running this race. Look with me at Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. He writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So on the one hand, the Thessalonians, they are running the race well in the face of persecution and affliction and hardship. But on the other hand, this is a church that's in need of encouragement. They need to be encouraged in the face of persecution. He first encourages them by reminding them that their ability, their ability to endure this hardship is evidence that God is working in them. As it says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. We need those reminders as well that when things are hard, when troubles come, if you are enduring that, if you are holding strong in faith, if you are putting your trust in Jesus, that is God's work in you. We need that. But then secondly, he encourages them by pointing them to the relief and judgment that Christ will bring when he returns. God is going to repay with affliction and eternal destruction those who are persecuting his people. And then he is going to grant relief to his people who are persecuted, afflicted, and burdened. Now as I look around this room, I know there are many of you that have been running this race much longer than I have. And I know just from knowing your lives that you guys have been through some stuff. Some of you in your life, because of your faith, have faced persecution. Maybe it's persecution of family members, right? I know uh, if there's something that, that I endured more than anything else from my family, it was um, just mocking from my own father, who was not a believer. Maybe you've endured persecution from coworkers, right, who don't like you because you're a Christian, or maybe it's people who used to be great friends who now aren't. 
I know also that there are chronic health issues that, that many of you are facing, things that, that are not and probably will not get any better as you continue in a fallen world in a fallen body. And then I also know that there are those who are fearful. Again, as our culture gets more and more secular, the hate for the church and what we stand for and what we believe in grows and grows. And if I'm honest, I know for myself, all three of these things, whether it's persecution or health issues or just kind of fear of where Christianity's going and what God's doing, I've dealt with all three of them. And I've asked those questions of God. I'm like, God, what are you doing? Like, why does it need to be this way? And as I'm going through this hard thing, can I really trust you? Can I, can I really believe that you are going to continue to be God even as I go through this? And God's answer to me and to you this morning is, yeah, you can. You can run this race and endure because the mile markers are winding down. The finish line is coming. And God is bringing his relief and judgment. Jesus is coming back. But here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we should just sit around and grit our teeth and be like, okay, I'm going to endure this hard until I can be in the sweet arms of Jesus. It doesn't mean that. But instead, like Paul has done in so many of his other letters, he reminds us that God is at work in us, even in the race, even in the struggles, even in the persecutions, and even in the sufferings. As he writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, he says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that... The name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To put it simply, God is using our hardship and he is using it to make us worthy of the calling of Christ so that he'll be made much of by our life. He's making us more like Christ through all that we suffer and endure in this life. And the reality is, is that this is from God and this is for God as he prepares us for eternal glory. And I'm going to say that again, that that is from God and it is for God as he prepares for us and prepares us for eternal glory. And so the encouragement for us this morning is to not lose heart, to continue to endure through all the hard that God has for you because he is making you more like Christ and he is preparing you for that day when you will reach the finish line you will see him face to face and your relief will be complete. That is 
is good news this morning that God wants us to know and to believe and live by. Second, the second coming helps us to stand firm in the truth. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 6 says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time? So let me ask you, how many of you ladies own at least one or more pieces of jewelry? Right? Yeah. And how many of you in all of the pieces of jewelry you own, own at least one diamond? Just one. Yeah, some of you are shaking your head. Yeah. So here's the thing. If you have purchased that diamond in the last four years, there is a very good chance that that diamond is actually lab-grown. I didn't know if you knew that. This is because the lab-grown diamond market has exploded. And it's exploded particularly because in these labs, they've figured out how to make these diamonds pretty much indistinguishable from the real ones. And not only that, but they are way cheaper to manufacture. In fact, the only way that you can distinguish the, the, real, the, the real kind of mined diamond from the lab-grown one is to take it to a gemologist who then would test the chemical composition. And if they find nitrogen, it's more than likely a real diamond. If they don't, it's more than likely one made in a lab. And so I don't want to alarm you, but if you've bought a diamond recently, it might have been... It, it's a stretch to fully call it a fake, but I'm going to call it a fake, and it might be made in a lab, okay? So you can take it to a gemologist if you want, however you want to, however you want to take care of that. But in a similar way, the Thessalonians, they are having a hard time. They're having a hard time distinguishing between what is fake and what is real. This is why Paul had to write to them. Right? He had to write to them all about the second coming. Because as I said at the beginning, someone has given them this letter, again, saying that it's from Paul, saying it's from his associates, saying that the day of the Lord or the second coming has already happened. Now, can you imagine? Stop right now. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Like, what did that do to their faith when they received this letter? This church was probably less than a year old, they're working hard to try to understand these basic teachings of Christianity and they're under intense persecution and are now being told this thing that they're like waiting for and hoping for that makes everything they're doing worth it. They're basically being told, hey, it's happened. You missed it. Sorry about your luck. I can imagine that the amount of panic and helplessness must have been immense. And the only parallel, I was trying to think about, have I had anything in my life kind of like this? And the only thing that I could think about was the first time that I heard about the rapture. Any of you remember when you heard about the rapture, right? Or kind of when you learned about it? So if you don't know what that is, basically the basic definition is the rapture 
is the point at which we are caught up with Jesus into the clouds when he returns, right? In fact, actually, 1 Thessalonians talks about it. But then there are these verses, particularly in Luke 17, 34 and 35. And they're not up here, but the, the basic thing that is said is that on that day when Jesus returns, that one person's going to be taken and one person's going to be left. In my mind was blown. Like, I remember thinking about this going, well, like, how do I know? Like, how do I know? How do I know when people are going to be taken and when they're not? Am I going to be taken or is this person going to be taken? Like, am I going to be left? Like, how am I going to know that this is happening? And eventually it worked me down this rabbit hole to the point where I was like, I don't even know if I'm saved. And so if something like that can put panic in such a young believer as myself, I can totally understand why the Thessalonians are worried. And this is why Paul, so quickly, within a few weeks to a month, wrote them a second letter. He understood that they were in a panic, and he wanted to write to them to say, like, hey, don't believe any letter, don't believe any word, don't believe any so-called spirit telling you that Christ has already come back. Like, that's not from us. Don't believe it. And to make sure, to make sure that they understood it, he goes on to explain in verses 3 to, 3 to 11 all that needs to happen before Jesus returns. And now I'm not going to read all those verses to you, but I do have a slide here. And it kind of just gives us a, a bullet point version of what he says need to ha- needs to happen. And he says that Jesus will not return until the rebellion happens. There's a rebellion that's going to happen, according to verse 3. That the it will not happen until the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed and proclaims himself to be God. That's the Antichrist in verses 3 and 4. Jesus will not return until the one who is restraining evil and lawlessness is out of the way. And some believe that's the archangel Michael. That's in verse 7. And then Jesus will not return until the lawless one comes by the activity of Satan with power and false signs to deceive the wicked. And that's verses 9 and 10. But then he tells them that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will appear. And when he appears, verse 8 says that he will destroy the man of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing. Can you imagine that? Like, just what that would look like. Like, God, our Lord, our Savior, breathes and Satan is nothing. That's going to be exciting. But here's Paul's main point. He's saying, don't worry. Don't worry, Thessalonians. There are still things that need to happen before Jesus comes. But when he does come, watch out. He is going to destroy the lawless one. He is going to destroy Satan. He is going to destroy death. And this is going to happen with the breath of his mouth. Jesus will win when he returns. But this isn't anything that this church didn't already know. As Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 and 6, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. I'm going to tell you these things again, but 
You already know that this is true because I told, this when I, I told you this when I was with you. You know what needs to happen before Christ comes, and you know what is currently restraining the evil one so that he can be revealed in God's timing. You already know it. Now, one of the things that I love about this church, and in particular more than any other church that I've been a part of, is I know that you guys love the Bible. Right? I hear all the time that that's why, that's why people chose to come here. Because we preach the word of God. And I know that many of you are daily consistent Bible readers. And you know, like you know the truths of God's word. But as familiar as we are with the Bible, if we're honest, we still struggle at times to believe it and live by it, don't we? And so what I want to do is I want to give you a test. We're going to take a moment. I'm going to put some verses up here on the screen. And I'm going to read them. And I want you to ask yourself, do I believe it? Look with me at Deuteronomy 31.8. It says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And I want to ask you, do you find yourself living in fear? Do you find yourself living with anxiety? And if you do, the question is, do you really believe that God is for you? That he is with you, that he will not forsake you? Or then in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you really boast in weakness? Is there that thing within you that's like, man, I am so excited that I get to be weak? Like, that's awesome, because Jesus gets to be made much of when I'm weak. Yay, sign me up for that. Or then in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus writes, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And do you truly believe that heavenly treasures, which you haven't seen yet, that they're better than earthly treasures and comforts. Do you believe that? And if you're struggling with this, my goal is to not make you feel like a bad Christian. I put, I put all of these up here because each of these things are things that I personally struggle with. I struggle with fear. I struggle with weakness. I struggle with desiring earthly comforts at times more than Christ. And to make matters worse, we live in a world of counterfeits. A world where we're always being fed messages that are contrary to the word of God. Things like live your best life now. It's all over the place. Life is about your success and happiness today. 
You can be whoever and whatever you want to be. Happiness can be found when we have the right laws and the right leaders or the right job, the right home, or the the right relationships. Those are going to be what satisfy me. But one of the realities of Scripture that helps us in the moments where we doubt the promises of God or we find ourselves just wanting to buy into those cultural messages is the truth that life is temporary, but eternity is forever. That there is an eternal kingdom that awaits us and will be fully realized when Christ returns. As I said in the first point, there is a finish line that is getting closer with each passing day. And the more we look to that finish line, the more we realize it is coming, and the more we see the prize that will one day be ours with Christ, the more we are able to believe and stand upon his promises for us today. As he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15, he says, To this he called you through our gospel. Why? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Glory when Christ returns. So then, in light of that, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The point from Paul is this. Don't lose heart and stand firm upon the promises of God until the day that Christ returns and we all together will receive eternal glory. And then lastly, there we go. Last point this morning is that the second coming keeps us from being idle. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, and then 11 and 12, Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So I remember when I graduated high school, I took a year off before going to college, and I worked at a gas station that was kind of a couple of blocks from my house. And I also remember that there were a couple people that I worked with that truly were the worst workers I'd ever seen. Like these are people that they're walking down an aisle, and there's like a broken jug of milk kind of right there. They just walk by. No big deal. Or you know, in every gas station, of course, there's the coffee station. Again, Quick Trip. Shout out to Quick Trip. They do a good job of keeping that thing clean. Very good. Like their coffee. But in my gas station, I remember that coffee area would get messy, and these workers, they would look at it. You know, you got your coffee cups, you got coffee all over, you got stir sticks, you got cream packets, sugar packets all over. You're just kind of like, eh, I'm not going to do anything about it. I even remember one time, like there was a gas spill outside and you're supposed to take kind of that kitty litter stuff and go out there and dump it on it and soak it up. It's like, nah, I can't do anything about it. It's not my responsibility. But then there was that moment, boss would come and you would have thought like a gunshot went off. These people were mopping, they were sweeping, they were cleaning up. They were like Johnny on the spot with everything running 100 miles an hour like it was an Olympic sport. 
right? They were like going for employee of the month within like that half hour period that the boss was there. And as soon as the boss left, nothing. They're back to not working. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that Dan pointed out that the Thessalonian church was dealing with believers who weren't working. But instead, they were more than likely mooching off other wealthier believers in the church. And so then Paul had to call them to action. And he wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12. He said, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more than more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependents on no one. So Paul's point here is that they're actually loving each other pretty well, but they needed to grow in the area of work. They needed to make sure that they were working, that they were taking care of their own homes, and not living off of other people so that they would honor God in the sight of non-believers. Now, there are many theories kind of floating around about why they weren't working. So one would say that these people decided that they didn't need to work because they thought, like, Jesus is coming back. And, and in their minds, like, Jesus was going to come back really soon. So they're like, well, I don't need to work because Jesus is coming back. Other theories were that, that some people were giving up um, work because they wanted to be full-time evangelists. They wanted to go preach the gospel full-time. And so since they were going to preach the gospel full-time, they're like, well, I don't need to work. Somebody else can pay for me, right? So maybe they were giving up working for that reason. So then to set them straight and correct them, this is what Paul, this is part of why Paul wrote that first letter. But then this fake letter comes. And it comes telling them that the second coming has already happened. And what do you think that did, their desire to work? They're thinking, Okay, Paul has told us to work. He said, keep awake and be ready because Jesus said that he's going to come like the thief in the night. And that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 6. But now we're being told that he's already come and we missed it. Why should I work so hard when the thing that I've been waiting for, the thing that he said, like, no, keep going because this thing's going to happen. Jesus is going to come. Like, that's what you're waiting for. Why should I keep working when I'm being told that it's already happened and I've missed it? And the results were that idleness and laziness actually grew in this church. And now to be fair to the Thessalonians, like if you showed up to work tomorrow and your company all of a sudden, like someone was like, hey, by the way, the company was dissolved, right? Or maybe they were like, hey, actually company moved to Mexico. Like, are you going to be like, that's okay. I'm going to keep working. You're not. You're going to be like, well, guess I'm going home, right? Maybe you go home. Maybe you get back into your pajamas, go back to bed. Yeah, you're not going to keep working. And so there were those in this church that were idle, not busy at work, but it says were instead busybodies and would meddle in the affairs of others. And so Paul, in this second letter, not only has to assure them that they haven't missed the second coming of Christ, but he also has to remind them, in light of Christ's eventual return, 
to endure suffering, to stand in truth, but also to keep working, keep going. And I think that this command is as relevant today as it was in the first century. Now, I don't mean that it's relevant to our church because I think you are a bunch of lazy people. That's not why I think it's relevant. But I do think that we continually live in a society that increasingly does not value work. Right? You, can, you, can see this, you can see this all the time as, as younger generations are going into the workforce. Right? If you're somebody that has to deal with employees going into the workforce, and there just seems to be less of a value placed on hard work. But even for us, right, if we're honest, like there are times that you wake up in the morning and you're like, I really don't want to go to work today, right? Because the truth is, work's hard. Work is frustrating. Work is daunting. There are times that work is very thankless. And so you're like, no thank you, hit the snooze, I'd rather stay in bed today. Happens to all of us. And in these moments, we all need reminders as God's children that work is a mandate from God, that God has given it to us for a purpose, and that it matters. We need reminders like those in 1 Thessalonians 4.12 that, that the way that we work, it is a witness to outsiders and believers. That's what Paul says, that you may walk properly before outsiders. It's a witness. Or that the way we live and work, it's a confirmation of our faith. And Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from, from wicked and evil men. And then he says, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So not all have faith, but we are confident that you have faith. Why? Because you are and will do the things that we have commanded, which are from God. Their working is a confirmation of their faith. And then finally, we need to be reminded that we are working not merely for the here and the now, but to receive an eternal reward and inheritance when Christ returns. Out of Colossians, Colossians 1, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And now there are many more that we could kind of pull out of Scripture, but I hope that those truths are encouraging to you this morning. That our Lord, our Savior, our brother, our friend, our Master, He's coming back. We've not missed it, and we will not miss it. But instead, we must wait with hopeful expectation of the day when we will see Him face to face, and we are going to be with Him forever. But until that day, remember this. We are all running the race of faith. The mile markers are winding down and the end is getting nearer. So even though life can be hard, at times it can feel daunting, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself to remain strong in faith. 
endure suffering, stand firm in the truth, and work heartily unto the Lord, knowing that what awaits you is an eternal reward of glory from your heavenly Father that's far greater, it's far greater than anything that this world has for you. Because what you're seeing and experiencing today is passing away, but the eternal glory of our inheritance is forever. As John writes in 1 John 2:17, he says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So endure, trust, and work, because today is passing. And eternity is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, each of us here this morning, no matter where we are at in our faith, no matter what struggles we are enduring, we all need the reminders to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to live in light of the reality that you are coming back so that we can endure the hardships of this life, so that we can continually trust your promises, but also, Lord, that we can work, that we, cannot, that we will not be sluggish, but that we will work heartily unto you, knowing that you are coming back, knowing that what we will receive from you is an eternal inheritance, and knowing that we get to look forward to that day when you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon you. Help us to walk by faith and stand on your promises. And again, help us to endure until that day you return. That's your, in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.